goes down again. <laughs> we need our own. <clears throat> Today's reading is Romans chapter 7, verses 4 through 25. It can be found on page 1042 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as up on the screen. This is God's word. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were controlled by our sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. But in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. The word of the Lord. So you're in for a real treat this morning, and that my ears are plugged, and I'm already a mumbler. 
So uh, <laughs> let's see how much of this you can hear. You know, the, the great thing about being a mumbler is uh, you get to repeat the same phrase over and over, louder and louder, until finally you're saying, I like hamburgers. You know, it's, uh, it's really just a wonderful thing. Uh, but uh, <laughs> please join me in prayer for a moment. Loving God, we're coming this morning from all sorts of places and um, different situations this week. Some of us are coming um, happy and relaxed, and some of us are coming with great stress and uh, sadness. Uh, we're coming with different approaches to you. Some of us don't know if we believe that you exist. Some of us are pretty sure you don't. Um, others of us uh, feel that just ex have been experiencing your love. Uh, we pray that wherever we're at this week, that uh, you would be here with us this morning in this gathering into uh, the lunch afterward, that you would be doing what you want to do among us. You would help us to know and experience your love um, from you and from one another, and that we would grow in love toward you and toward others. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, uh, right now, we're pre preaching through a chunk of the book of Romans, which um, I think it's been touched on, but the Apostle Paul wrote this to the church in the city of Rome uh, 2,000 years ago. He had never met the church there, and so he's uh, really going into detail about what he thinks the gospel of Jesus is, because he's wanting them to be able to evaluate his views well. Uh, and so we've been preaching through this uh, week by week, and Everything, all, all these different sermons for the past few weeks and the next few weeks are, are one following the other, right from the text. So they all really relate to each other. Um, they build on one another because this is a guy writing a letter that is developing over time. So uh, one of the things that we see in this theme is uh, Mark talked a couple weeks ago about uh, the fact that the law that rules cannot drive sin out of our lives that the rules can't keep us uh, away from being selfish and self-centered and doing damaging things to other people. Uh, and then last week, Josiah talked about the way that uh, sin is, is disordered love, that everything we do in all of life or don't do reflects kind of uh, priorities of the things that we are choosing to love. Uh, you know, if, if I choose that I'm going to sit on the couch instead of get up and do the dishes, at that moment I'm prioritizing, you know, my own comfort rather than, you know, taking care of something for my family. Um, you know, every, every little act we do, we're, we're choosing what we love more than others, how we prioritize. And, uh, and so as Josiah went into that, you know, our, we, what we talk about as sin as Christians um, in the church is getting love out of order. So loving things wrongly. You know, some people have summed it up that if you love people like things and you treat things like people, then that's kind of the essence of a lot of our different uh, selfishness and the ways we go astray. Uh, and so I think uh, you know, that's a really helpful image to work with. And then it moves us to this week's letter, uh, or, or chapter of the letter, which I think is one of the more brutally honest and um, kind of just psychologically profound chapters in the Bible uh, where it goes much deeper into just our own internal conflict. Uh, it says, you know, that I, I just think everyone can kind of relate to this, 
The things that I want to do that I know are good, I don't end up doing those. And the things I end up doing are the things that I hate. And so I have this life of, you know, I, I regret so many things because I didn't do what I meant to do. And I wanted to um, be a good person on this day. And instead, I acted selfishly. Um, you know, I, I want to just break this like terrible habit, this selfish habit, and I keep going back to it. Uh, so just there's really this struggle that I think is true for all of us, that we, we just feel uh, the desire to be a good person. We want to be good, and yet we have this other desire within us that gets the loves out of order, and that that one takes over a lot of the time, that we end up doing the wrong thing. Um, and the thing is, we, we have these rules, right, in a way that the Bible is not a, a book of rules. Um, it sometimes gets kind of a, a reputation for that, but, you know, rules make up a, a significant portion, but not that much. Um, but it has these instructions for how to live life. Uh, Jesus sums them up. He says all of them can be collapsed into love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says if you do that, life is taken care of. There's your ethical code. Uh, and then there are a bunch of other things that help spell that out because... If we didn't have it spelled out, we'd have all kinds of fancy ways of uh, justifying doing selfish things as good things. Uh, but, you know, there are instructions that we have. You know, we're familiar with the Ten Commandments. I think pretty much everyone is going to be somewhat familiar with those. Um, and in a lot of ways, they seem like common sense. Like, don't murder other people. Okay. Um, you know, don't betray other people by breaking your promises. Okay, that makes sense. Um, you know, don't, just generally, don't treat people like objects. Don't treat them like they're props in your life. Uh, treat them like people who are equal with you, who are of equal value. Uh, and these are, are good, and I think most people will hear them and say, okay, that makes sense. Uh, I get that. And then even, I'd like to live like that. But the rules themselves don't actually help us to do that. We end up treating people like objects all the time. Um, we end up treating people like they're less valuable than we are. We end up treating possessions more valuable than other people, sometimes more valuable than ourselves. Uh, you know, so we, we are constantly getting this wrong because just knowing what we should do isn't enough to help us do it. Uh, you know, we, we have these competing uh, desires within us. And even when we're working really hard to, to prove ourselves, to be good, um, there's a, a, an attempt to justify ourselves sometimes. And if, if we believe in God, then often it's an attempt to justify ourselves to God. We want to demonstrate that I'm good enough to be loved by God, that you know, we might come from a place of anxiety, we might be really afraid of judgment and punishment, and so we, just, we want to prove ourselves enough that we can escape that or it might come from a place of really wanting to do right. Uh, but at the base, there's often a fear uh, when we're trying to justify ourselves. If, if that's our primary concern, we're afraid of being found out as fraudulent or not good enough. Uh, and, and there's this theologian and pastor in the church 1,400 years ago. Uh, his name was Gregory. We call him Gregory the Great. Uh, because we like to give titles like that, but he, he really uh, was an insightful guy. But he talked about the way that uh, 
you know, from this motivation of fear that if we work toward goodness on that basis, we end up just replacing one sort of sin for another, one kind of selfishness for another. Uh, he has this image. He says, you know, if you have a nail and a board and you want to drive that nail out of the board, a really effective way to do it is to put another nail behind it and hammer it in. And the first nail comes out and that you've got your problem solved, except that you wanted a nail-free board and you now have a new nail in there. You also have a slightly bigger hole. Um, and so he says, you know, this is basically, he says, this is what it looks like when we attempt to rid ourselves of our own selfishness, of our own greed, of our own sin. Uh, he says, we, you know, we, whether we realize it or not, we're very often trying to drive out one sort of sin with another. Um, an example would be, you know, if you... Um, so, so you've heard of the seven deadly sins, maybe, you know, or maybe you've seen the movie Seven. I'm not going to endorse that necessarily, but um, you know, there, there's this idea that Gregory the Great had been going on for a long time, but he kind of encapsulated it in one of his books. He said that you know all different types of this selfishness and this sin and these, these disordered loves break down into one of about seven types. And so he has, let's see, sloth. Um, which is like laziness, it's not just laziness. They're all more interesting than you've heard probably. They're all more nuanced. Uh, there's gluttony, um, there is lust, there is avarice, which is sometimes called greed, but is actually a lot more interesting than just greed. Uh, there's wrath, which is improper and unwarranted anger, um, often leading to violence. There's vainglory, and there's pride, and those two seem similar. Um, the really basic version of that is vainglory is wanting other people to think highly of you, um, being concerned with others' opinion of you. Pride is you don't even care what other people think about you because you're so high in your own self-estimation. Like, they may not think much of me, but I know I'm, I'm good. Uh, and so this is, this is an idea that all sins kind of boil down to these things. And uh, so Gregory talks about, you know, if, if you were dealing with sloth, if you were lazy, not a diligent worker, um, you, know, you just tended to, to want to rest all the time. Rest is good in, in the right time, but um, so you might be able to drive that out by cultivating avarice. So he says if you want more things, uh, you want more possessions, you want a bigger house, you want a nicer car, um, any of these things, then you could make yourself into a harder worker as long as you come to love possessions and wealth more than you know, resting around on your couch. Uh, and so he says if you do that, it looks like an improvement. You know, the world around you will look at you and be like, now that person's on the right track. They used to just be laying about, and now they're hard working hard. But you've just replaced one type of selfishness with another, one type of disordered love with another. He says, and then you could take that avarice, and you could say, you know, I really want people to respect my generosity. I want people to think of me as a generous person. And so I'm going to start giving a lot of my wealth away. Um, I'm going to do it in a very public manner, uh, you know, that sort of thing, so that people know I'm going to get my name on the building or on the monument or just, you know, listed in a little brochure. Um, and he says, so then we become generous. And people might say, oh, look at this generous person. You know, they're, they're even, they've moved on beyond what they were doing before. But we've just replaced one sin with another. Uh, another approach on that one might be something like, I want to... Because yeah, generosity doesn't always come out that way. It might be, I want to embrace minimalism. 
you know, there's not just minimalism and I actually don't want that much, but the whole kind of cult of minimalism where all of my social media contacts know that I'm a minimalist. <laughs> you know, like here is a picture of my five shirts in my closet and it is gorgeous. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's this one where we wanted to show people how disciplined we are. Uh, and so we might go that route. And then he says, you might even get past this one and say, you know, like, I'm not going to tout these things to people. I'm not going to be bragging about it. I'm not going to be showing off um, so that others praise me because I'm just, I know that I get that superior feeling by doing the right thing when no one knows about it. And so he says, then you might be moving into pride uh, where you get this other sense of satisfaction of just being proud of yourself, thinking other people might need attention, but not me. Uh, so he says, this is what we end up doing. And we, we trick ourselves. We don't realize that it, these things really seem like we're replacing a bad thing with a good thing. Uh, we don't see that all of our attempts get corrupted by our own disordered loves, um, that we can't push through it. And so we're in this place, like in Romans chapter 7, where I want to do the right thing and I keep ending up doing the wrong thing. I, I start off with the good intentions and then somehow it goes astray and I can't justify myself. I just can't get there. Uh, you know, a phrase that comes up a lot here at City Life is I'm, we're more of a mess than we care to admit. And uh, you know, that puts it kind of gently but it puts it really well that we have this deep level of corruption within us that we, we just can't justify ourselves. Um, and so there's a story that I think kind of helps to frame some of this. Uh, there, there was a man named Andre Rublev, which, how many people have heard of Andre Rublev? Uh, you might have, like, in the past week or so. Uh, he, he's considered a saint in some parts of the church. And uh, for those who do, who remember him, his, the celebration of his memory was this past Tuesday, which is also, you might have heard, the 4th of July. But um, I'm sure most of us were focusing on Andre Rublev that day. Um, but he was a medieval um, Russian monk and artist. And uh, he painted icons. And I meant to have a slide of one of his icons, and I did not do that. But uh, trust me, it's just beautiful. Um, but he, he painted these paintings for the church. They were religious art that would get displayed in churches and monasteries. Um, and one of the stories about him is that he had been a monk and an artist doing these paintings for some years. He just became so unsatisfied. Um, he increasingly just felt a recognition that he was not living up to what he should be. He, he wanted to be, you know, kind of morally and spiritually perfect. And he, more and more he realized that he wasn't. Um, he even thought to himself, you know, I, I really, I can't do these paintings for the church until I really get to a, a better level. He said, I need to be a better person. I need to kind of prove myself to God that I am worthy to do art that is worthy of God. And so he's, he's been in this monastery and he, and he leaves the monastery and he takes a vow of silence. And he does this with the intention of achieving just a higher level of moral and spiritual existence. He says, I'm gonna, he's going to discipline himself by not allowing him to say, himself to say anything. You know, it's a, it's a very, he means his vow of silence. Uh, he's going to go out, he's going to think only about God. He's going to work on this until he's finally ready to do the art. 
And I think if we stop there for a second, this is the type of thing that a lot of us are going to be familiar with. Maybe not the vow of silence, but you know, sometimes we, we just get so upset with ourselves or we're so disappointed that we say, you know, I'm going to adopt some new discipline. I'm going to do this new thing, and it's going to put me on track, and my life is going to be all pulled together when I'm done with this. You know, and for like, people who have grown up as Christians, a lot of times it's going to be, I am going to read six chapters of the Bible. Well, we don't do six, probably. You do seven chapters of the Bible a day. Um, you know, I'm going to pray for an hour a day. Or it might be, I'm going to you know, fast on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Wednesday, Friday? There's that mumbling. Um, you know, I'm going to, I mean, and if you didn't grow up in the church or Christian, then it might be something like, sometimes we discipline ourselves with food, so it's going to be, I'm going to adopt this really, you know, stringent diet that is painful, and so pain means it's good. Um, or I'm going to take up this new exercise uh, thing. You know, there are all these different things we do, but we say, like, I'm going to take on this new one. It's going to change my life. It's going to make me into the good person I want to be um, and carry me forward. And so that's what he, he attempts. Um, he takes on the vow of silence, and he goes out, and he starts kind of wandering the countryside, town to town, uh, being the weird silent guy. And, but, you know, everyone also knows, like, he's very spiritual because he's taking a vow of silence. You know, uh, whispering doesn't count if you're Val Sainsbury. <laughs> but, you know, he's, he's doing this, and he goes around, and he finally in one town, he sees um, a, a child about, I think, around 10 years old, who was an apprentice to his father. Um, his father was a bell maker, and he had been apprenticing, learning bell making, but he'd only learned a little bit um, by that point, and both of his parents died. And so he was orphaned, and... Um, he was left with some commissions that he was supposed to finish, you know, that his father had, you know, been commissioned to make some bells. Um, he doesn't really know how to do it. He doesn't have a family anymore. He doesn't have any support. And his kid's just in a desperate situation. You know, uh, it's hard to imagine what it would be like to be newly orphaned in a medieval village. Um, but just, you know, not an easy thing. And, and Andre sees this for a few days, and... He, Finally, he's so moved that he breaks his vow of silence to comfort the child. Uh, you know, he, he sees the kid in, in this misery and, and just lost without a family and, so, and just is moved. Just, you know, I, I think about it. He's been having this vow of silence for a while. It is something that is very much in his mind. You know, it's, it's not the kind of thing he just breaks without deliberation. But he decides that he's going to break it so that he can comfort this child. And I think, you know... There's something really powerful there that in, in that moment, I think in, as he's observing this kid for a few days, it seems like in the story that he, he begins to recognize himself in that child. Uh, he begins to recognize the way that God engages with us. Uh, that he sees just this misery and his suffering and just not knowing what to do, not belonging, and is moved by love. Um, it's not, he's not looking at this kid that, wow, this kid really has, you know, proven himself. What a great kid that he, he has a lot of skill to offer us. You know, he, he's already an expert bell maker, and that would be a really valuable addition to the monastery. You know, he's not looking at any of that. He's just moved by pity, by love for this child. And, uh, you know, I think it, it touches back in some ways to me to, to the story of the prodigal son, which a lot of us are familiar with, that, you know, where... The father's son betrays him and runs away, um, takes his inheritance, spends, spends it all. Um, he comes back miserable and just having totally 
you know, done everything wrong, and his father just moved with love and runs out and greets him and welcomes him back into the family. Um, he hasn't done anything to earn that, but he's welcomed back. And I think in this moment, Andre sees a child and recognizes that this is himself, that he is the one who just, sure, doesn't have much to offer right now, but God loves him. That God wants him to be a member of his family. That God wants to welcome him in in grace. And so he, you know, he comforts the child and he invites him. He says, why don't you come to the monastery? It's a, you know, it's a big family of people who weren't related to begin with. Um, you can live there and be loved and welcomed. And you can, you can continue learning your art there. You know, he, sa- he says, I will paint. You will make bells. Um, and so he takes him back. And... You know, this, this really is a situation for us. In all of our striving, in all of our attempts to justify ourselves, we can't do it. We run against this wall. We end up with this, you know, who will rescue me from this body of death, like Paul says? Um, you know, I keep doing the things I don't want to do. And then this chapter ends with, thanks be to God who delivers at me through Jesus Christ. It says, through Jesus, God has come to deliver me from this Selfish, self-centered, sinful existence where I cannot justify myself. I'm just caught. I'm dead, effectively. I can't breathe new life into myself. The law can't breathe new life into myself. Rules can't breathe new life. Spiritual disciplines can't breathe new life. You know, moving from one thing to the next can't do that. But who can rescue me from this? Thanks be to God and Jesus Christ. That God's love demonstrated through Jesus and, and his life and his death on the cross and his resurrection is what gives us this offer to enter the family of God. Um, it is an offer to be adopted, to be a child of God. And you know, this, this image of adoption is huge in, throughout the Bible. It's huge in this letter. Um, it's this idea of you know, just being loved. Somebody just chooses that they are going to love you and welcome you. And this is what Andre experiences. He, you know, he recognizes that the family, to be a member of a family is not to have proven yourself to be a member of the family. It's not to have demonstrated that you, know, you have desirable qualities to be kept around as a child. It's to be welcomed and wanted and loved. That that is what it means to be in a family. And this is true for all of us. That wherever we're at in our struggle, wherever we're at in our striving, that we are welcomed and wanted and loved by God through Jesus to be a part of this family. And then, touching back on that little note about Andre saying, I will paint and you will make bells. So Andre doesn't just go back to the monastery. He doesn't just have this discovery of you know, not having to strive to prove himself. But he, has, he goes back to his work in a different way. Uh, he ends up, and again, this is where the slide would have been nice. He paints what is known as his masterpiece. Uh, it's, and I'm sorry, it is beautiful. Uh, but um, he, he goes back and he has a different quality in his work. And his painting is no longer this attempt to paint the perfect piece of religious art that will please God. You know, to have to, for him to be morally you know, perfect and spiritually pure and to make this perfect thing and offer it to God, that's not his goal anymore. He recognizes that God does not need his good works. That, that God has everything God needs. God loves him and welcomes him. But God doesn't need anything from him. But his neighbors need his good works. The people around him 
need love to flow out of his life. And so he's living in medieval uh, Russia, surrounded primarily by peasants who can't read. And his, he goes back to his painting, recognizing the purpose of this art is for people, my neighbors who can't read to see something of the beauty and the truth of God and to be able to better think and know and reflect on the God who loves them. Thinking, you know, this is meant to capture something for them. That's why I'm doing this. It's not to make God happy, because God could do this by God's self, you know. But no, he's doing this for others. That Because he's been welcomed and loved, it's his job to just work in that freedom. Not out of striving, not out of perfectionism, not out of trying to prove himself, but out of this, this love and this welcome to extend that to others through his work. And uh, this is also the invitation to us that we can be released not from, you know, wanting to be good or to do the right thing, but just to have a different approach to that, to be, uh, to be liberated from our attempts to prove ourselves, to justify ourselves, and to be liberated into living a life of love in service, to, uh, to doing right by our neighbors, to loving them well, because we've experienced that love and we want them to know that they too are welcome and part of this family, um, because we recognize that we no longer have anything to prove. You know, we no longer have to worry about any of that. We, we don't have to say, should I do this thing? Will it be good enough? Will it, will it, you know, if I have to choose between two options, will this act elevate my status more? He says, no, like our calculus just changes. We just look, which of these things is most necessary to help those around me, to help set the world to right, to help reconcile everything back into what it was meant to be? And this really is an invitation to all of us, wherever you're at, uh, you know, that God is extending a welcome to you and wanting you to be part of that family. And whatever your response is, um, maybe this is something you're really familiar with. Um, maybe it's something that you're kind of thinking like that. I'm not, you know, I'm not ready for that. I don't know if I think that's true or, um, or if it really appeals to you that you are wanted and loved and welcomed. And you know, that is going to be a standing invitation there uh, to come to the table at, uh, at, at God's house, basically. Um, to be a member of God's family, uh, to be welcomed and loved and, and freed. And likewise, there is that invitation to join in the work, not as somebody who's trying to prove yourself, but as somebody who recognize that this work is valuable to other people, that this is good for the world, um, so that all of your life, you know, even the most mundane things, can be done in love. Uh, you know, after everything wraps up here, we'll have a couple people toward the front if you need prayer, if you would like prayer, or you'd like to just talk to somebody about any of this. Um, so you're welcome to do that. But wherever you're at today, whatever you end up feeling, I want you to especially hear the final words of our gathering, of the formal part of our gathering this morning, when in a little bit you'll hear uh, Jake say, go in peace. Uh, because this is effectively the message that, that Andre recognizes and that we end up realizing through the work of Jesus Christ that this is God's desire for you, to go in peace, to, to, to be in that place where you don't have to prove yourself but to go and live that out, to go and live from a place of love. Please join me in prayer.
God, it's, it's all too often <laughs> so clear to us that we, we can't prove ourselves um, that we're not good enough. And sometimes we trick ourselves into thinking that we actually have done that, that, that we've gotten to the place of being self-sufficient. Um, and I, I just pray wherever we're at this morning that you would help us to recognize the, the emptiness and the hollowness of all of our attempts to prove ourselves, to justify ourselves, to, to make ourselves seem valuable and important, and to recognize the value and the importance that you place on us with your love. Uh, you would help us, through whatever way, to encounter that, that grace uh, that is not just a declaration of you are invited, you are welcome, but it's, it's a living and active thing that helps us to know your love and your, the, your freedom, uh, the peace that comes with knowing you. Pray that you'd be with all of us as we go through our day and through our week. In Jesus' name.